0: To the great detectives of old-time radio from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box thirteen at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radiodetectives. And check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you want to never miss an episode of the podcast, I encourage you to follow it using your favorite podcast software, whether it's Overcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, or the Amazon Music app at amazon.com slash otrdetectives. I also want to let you know about my ebooks, All I Needed to Know I Learned from Columbo, and All I Needed to Know I Learned from Dragnet. Each examines the careers and histories of seven great fictional detectives and policemen, and life lessons that can be learned from them. You can find this as an audiobook through the... Apple or Audible stores, and as an e-book wherever fine e-books are sold, and you can find all my books, audio books, and e-books at store.greatdetectives.net. Well now, it's time for this week's episode of Philo Vance. The original air date, January 3rd, 1950, and the title is The Tip Top Murder Case. And I will warn you in advance that the audio is going to be a little rough, uh, but let's go ahead and take a listen. (laughs) It's <laughs>
1: out of it, Susie. You look like the last bar of the last rose of summer. I'm all right, Ella. You ready to go to work? Well, I will be as soon as I get finished putting on this makeup. Who invented makeup, anyway? I gotta put it on to go out in the street and then take it off and put new stuff on at the theater. Ella? Yeah? Do you think we're ever gonna get any place in show business? Well, where do you want to get? You're in the front row of the chorus now, aren't you? So am I. If you got any further front, we'd be in the orchestra
2: pit. That isn't what I mean. I mean, do you think we'll ever be able to get out of this little apartment and out of the chorus? I'm doing pretty good now with the talents I got. With
1: you, it's different. You're young and cute. You ought to be in pictures, maybe. Not anything, so? I said ought to be, kid. Ought to be and going to be are two different things. Well, fix this face of mine as good as it'll ever be, I guess. Let's get up. Hey, what's that under the door? It looks like an envelope. I don't know why it should look like an envelope, except for one reason. That's because it is an envelope. I'll get it. One way to keep my girlish figure. Bending for envelopes, people slide under doors. Oh, here, it's addressed to you, Miss Susan Blake. Well, who could be? Find out the hard way. Open it and see. <gasps> Ella. What's the matter, kid? Somebody call out of that envelope and slug you. That's the way you sound Listen <gasps> you know to what the
2: note says. It says, unless you pay me $5,000 in cash, in a way I will tell you about tomorrow, you'll be dead by tomorrow night. <gasps> dead by tomorrow night, Ella? Unless I pay somebody
1: $5,000? $5, 5000 Clams? We haven't got 500
2: pennies between us. Oh, Susie, somebody's kidding. Oh, they can't be. They could go to jail for writing a note like this. Ella, what are we going to do?
1: Oh, we can go to the cops, or we can get $5,000 somewhere. All I
2: know is we've got to do something. I've got to do something. I'm going to get that (coughs) $5,000. Vance, you've got to help me. You've helped so many other people.
3: I'll be glad to do what I can, Miss Blake. This note was slipped under your door, and you have no idea who might be trying to get $5,000 from you.
2: No, all I know is it can't be anybody who knows me at all. I haven't any money. All I have is my job in our musical show, The Tip Top Review.
3: I understand. But I don't think I understand your reluctance to go to the police. You say you're afraid that the publicity might be detrimental to you. Seems to me that show business people relish publicity of this sort.
2: Well, they like publicity, all right, but not this kind. If I had jewels stolen or something like that, it'd be different. But the possibility of a murder isn't good publicity. Maybe they wouldn't like it. I don't want to take a chance and they're not liking it. You understand?
3: Your idea is that I can help you. And if I can, there's no need of your going to the police.
2: That's right. You're a private investigator. The best in the world. Vance, you've got to help me.
3: Let me see that note again. Here. Mm. Unless you pay me $5,000 in cash, in a way I'll tell you about tomorrow, you'll be dead by tomorrow night. Do you notice anything strange about this typewriting? No. It's very neatly typed, except that every time the letter Y is used, whoever typed it hit a wrong key first. The Z, I think. Then the Y was typed over it. Hmm.
2: What can that mean?
3: I don't know yet. Tell me one other thing. Is there someone who wants to put you under obligation to him? Someone who wants you to come to him and borrow
2: $5,000? Oh, I see what you're getting at. Maybe there is such a person, there now that you've brought it up.
3: Tell me who he is and I'll go see him.
2: No, no, I... I don't think I will. I think it'd be a much better idea if I saw him myself.
3: Hold it. I'm coming. Well, Susie, come on in.
2: Thanks, John. You don't seem surprised that I'm here.
3: I'm not. I just called your apartment and your roommate told me she thought you might be coming to see me. Sit down, Susie. Can I get you something?
2: No. Don, would you do something for me?
3: Anything, Susie. I always told you I'd do anything for you if you'd only give me a chance. What's the gimmick?
2: I need (laughs) $5,000.
3: Who doesn't? What's the pitch?
2: I need the money desperately, Don. I'll pay it back a little at a time, but I have to have it tonight.
3: Well, we'll have to see what we can do about that. What's the angle?
2: Well, I can't...
3: Oh, don't go away, Susan. I'll get rid of whoever's on the phone. Yeah? That you, Don? Well, yeah, Frankie. Only I can't... Listen, Don, this is it. There's a boat race tomorrow. The 4th. Then... I'll call you back. You can't reach me. Get down on it with everything. The 4th. Victory. Frankie, you're a fool. Call me back in ten minutes. Now, uh, Susie, where were we?
2: You wanted to know why I needed the money. Now I want to know something.
3: Yeah? What's the question?
2: That, uh, phone call you just got. I think I know what it
3: means. Oh, really? What's the proposition?
2: You know what I want. Five thousand dollars.
3: Mm-hmm. Five grand. Well, Susie, I've got a soft spot in my head for you. I always said I'd take care of you. And don't you worry. I will. Ernie Markham speaking. Hello, Markham. This is Vance. How are you, my friend? What's up? I thought perhaps you might be trying to get me in the next half hour for some reason or other. And I just wanted to report to you that I couldn't be reached. Nothing's come up here that'd be interesting to you, Vance? In that case, I'm on my way. Where are you bound for? A girl came to me today, Markham. Susan Blake. Her life has been threatened, and she has until tomorrow to get the $5,000 whoever wrote the note demanded. But she said she had a call to make after she left me, and I'm going up to her apartment to find out who it was she went to see and what happened there. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help Miss Blake. I will. But if I have to call on the law, Markham, I'm afraid it'll be too late for anybody to help her. Hello up there.
1: You're me?
3: In a way, my name is Philo Vance. I'm looking for the apartment of a girl named Susan Blake.
1: Mighty nice looking.
3: I or my quest.
1: Well, brother, let's face facts. You ain't there. Well, thank you. Oh, it ain't me you have to thank. Send a fan letter to your mother, your father, and your tailor. <laughs> I'm Ella Andrews, Susie's roommate. I'm just on my way up to the apartment. Uh, can you make another flight of stairs?
3: Mm, under protest.
1: Oh, better make it under your own power. I haven't carried anybody up a flight of stairs since I quit my job as a volunteer fireman.
3: I thought firemen only carried people down.
1: Maybe that's why I got fired. <laughs> <laughs> I heard of you, Van. Susie told me she was going to see you, and I was glad she did.
3: Because of that threatening note she got?
1: Oh, because of a lot of things. Mostly a thing named Donald Graham, who's got a yen for Susie a mile long. Graham? Mm, big time operator. What his racket is, I don't know. As long as I want to stay healthy, I don't care about finding out. He called here after Susie left this afternoon. I told him Susie was going to see him. Well, here we are. This, and don't you dare laugh, is home. I get my key.
3: Seems to me that the door is open.
1: Hmm, seems to me that what seems to you ain't wrong. Susie's probably home. Hey, Susie, you got company. Come on in there. Thank you. Oh, well, Susie's probably in the bedroom. I'll go look. There's a magazine line over there if you want to read. It's a couple of months old, though. Really? Yeah, my boyfriend's a dentist. <laughs> Be right out, Van.
3: All right, Miss Andrews.
1: Susie probably fell asleep waiting for me. Miss to...
3: <gasps> <laughs> Andrews, what is it? What's the matter? It's It's crazy. Poor
1: girl. Oh, I don't want to look. I don't want to look.
3: You don't have to. <laughs> better come out here in the living room with me. <laughs> Apparently, your roommate had a visitor before we got here, Miss Andrews. Visitor named Murder. I'm sorry about that Blake girl, Vance. Sergeant Heath and his men will investigate the case thoroughly, believe me. I'm sure they will, Markham. I wanted you to drive out here with me to see the dead girl's mother. She lives out here in the suburbs, according to the information I have. A little too far out for Miss Blake to commute every day. Yes. The mother's name is Cherny. Susan changed her name Hello. when she went on the stage. This ought to be the house, I think. You want me to go in with you? Please. The mother has been informed of the murder. I'll feel better if you with me. Good enough. <clears throat> yeah, a quaint little house, isn't it? Yes. Something old-world about it. I hope we can learn something here, Martin. I certainly do, too. Ring the bell, will you, Vance? Right. I have an idea that talking to the mother might give us a lead as to who might have tried to get $5,000 from a girl who was broke. And who killed her before the time limit he himself set was up. I don't understand that. I don't either.
2: You are police. Come in.
3: Thank you, Mrs. Channing. This is Mr. Markham. My name is Vance. How do you do?
2: Come in. What do you want with me?
3: I'd like to look around the house if you don't mind, Mrs. Cheney.
2: I don't mind. I don't care. I don't care about anything anymore.
3: We're trying to find the man who killed your daughter, Mrs. Cheney. You'll help us.
2: Suppose you do find him. What could that they sue you now? What do you want to know?
3: Tell us about Susan.
2: Well, I bring her here many, many years ago from the old country. She was just a baby. All the furniture, you see, everything here comes from the old country. I try to make this house just like the one I leave. We
3: understand that.
2: Susan go to school, then to business college. I want her to be secretary. I, I was secretary in old country for branch office the American Company. You're not farm
3: people. Please go on.
2: Susan seemed to like practicing piano, dancing. I tried to make her typewrite things at home on machine I still have, which I bring from other side. But she go to business college only to please me. Much rather she dance
3: and sing. Uh, who were her friends? Do you
2: know that? No, that I do not know. She... Come home when she gets a chance, but not too often. She was here the day before she was killed. I I have nothing else to tell you, except she was a good girl. I'm very
3: sure of that, Mrs. Cherney. Thank you very much. You're leaving? Yes. You'll hear from us, though.
2: Uh, Yes, yes, you see, Goodbye.
3: Goodbye, Mrs. Cherney. If you think of anything I ought to know, Mrs. Cherney, please call me on the telephone. I'm in the book.
2: Oh, yes, yes, of course. Goodbye.
3: Well, Vance, I guess that was a wasted visit. Why do you say that, my friend? Well, it's pretty apparent, isn't it? found out absolutely nothing. What did you expect to find out, Markham? Well, I'd hope to get a lead on whoever it was that wrote that threatening note to Miss Blake. Oh, that note? I know who wrote that note. You do? Mm-hmm. I don't even want to know how you know. Just tell me who it is so we can pick him up. It wouldn't do us any good, Markham. Not yet, that is. Knowing who wrote that note doesn't mean knowing who committed the murder... This is District Attorney Markham. The tip top murder case began with the finding of the body of chorus girl Susan Blake after she had received a typewritten note. Threatening her with death unless she paid the writer $5,000. Philo Vance says he knows who wrote that note, but insists he is more interested in the identity of the murderer. And right now, he's decided to go over to the Tip Top Review, the musical show which employed Miss Blake and her roommate, Ella Andrews. He should be there about now on account of the number. Now, look, you kids. This show's been running for six months, and just because we got a new girl to break in, you're all rehearsing like you got lead in your feet. Now, this is a step you've been missing. Watch me, will you? Okay, Harry.
1: Well, how about it, boys and girls? Can you do it? No, we'll see. Take it from the top. Hit it, Harry. Hello.
3: Hello, Miss Andrews. Mind if I talk to you a minute?
1: Talk to me for five, if you like. We got that much time off from rehearsal. What did you find out about who killed Susie?
3: That's what I came to talk to you about. You told me of a friend of hers named Don Graham.
1: Yeah, that's right. I did. I told you about him when we were climbing the stairs to our apartment. He's a no-good guy if there ever was one. And there was
3: one, I'm told. Hmm. I'm working on a theory, Miss Andrews. And this is what I want to know. Did your roommate, Susan Blake, tell you anything at all about Graham?
1: I know she went to see him. Graham knows I know she went to see him because he called the apartment after Susie called me and told me she was going up there.
3: That's right. You told me that, too. That's not so good.
1: It isn't.
3: No. Now, look, Miss Andrews, this is serious. Did Susan tell you anything about Graham? Anything at all?
1: Not that I can remember. Why? Why?
3: Why? Because that might save your life. I've got all the money I could raise on that horse victory in the fourth today, Frankie. You know that. Sure, Don. Like I told you, it's a boat race. Every horse in the fourth is owned by one guy under different names. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Guy's waiting two years to pull a thing like this, and only three people know it. Him, me, and you. Good. Good. That means the price on the horse, Victory, will stay up. Not too many people will be betting on him. You know why I tried to stop you from telling me about the race on the phone yesterday? I know now, because that dame Susie was here, that's why. She was here and she heard you. She figured out what you were saying, and I think she did. She'd spread the story that the horse race was fixed all over town. Sure, sure, I know. And the price would go down and some wrong guy had to hear about the fix and spoil the whole thing. Frankie, I stand to make over a hundred grand on that race. That's too much to risk on a dame's yapping. What's the answer? The answer is I shut up the dame like you told me to. I'll tell you something, Don. It wasn't a bad job. I
1: Anybody home?
3: Hey, quite the dame, bustling. Oh, What do you want here?
1: You know who I am?
3: No, and that's all right with me. What's the pitch?
1: I'm Ella Andrews. I was Susie Blake's roommate. So? So which one of you is Don Graham? I am. Look, Mr. Graham, you've got to believe me. Susie never told me a thing before she was killed. I-, I never saw her from the time she left the apartment till the time I found her dead. you got to believe that.
3: What is all this, John? Who knows? What's the gimmick, Ella? Why well, come here to tell me this?
1: Well, I wanted you to know. I... You- you've got to know, and you- you've got to believe me. She never said a word to me. Tell me you believe me. Please tell me.
3: All right, cutie. If it'll make you happy. I believe it. Now get going.
1: Okay, I... I had to be sure you knew that. I'll only remember it, will you?
3: Yeah. How do you figure that one down? Very simple, Frankie. The gal knows something about the race. What else? let see. The Blake gal took this one out, huh? Only she's scared and wants to make out like she don't know nothing. That's right. Frankie, I think maybe you ought to go visit this young lady. You know where she lives? Yeah, sure. I was there once. To see Susie Blake. Remember? Vance, listen to me. See if this isn't your theory, too. This John Graham you told me about sent the threatening note to Miss Blake, believing that she would run to him for the money which he would give her. And thus put her under obligation to him. Right. He'd send her another note saying to leave the 5000 somewhere, and he'd pick up the money he'd given her, his own money. He lost nothing. That makes sense, Vance. Yes, it does. But it doesn't make a reason for him to kill her. Especially as I'm sure Miss Blake did go to see Graham and ask him for the money. Maybe she had something on Graham and reminded him of it when she went there. Maybe she used blackmail as a means of getting the five thousand. That's very possible, Markham. But but what? But that isn't even close to what actually happened. <laughs>
1: Don't bother, Mrs. Williams. I've got my key. I thought I mislaid it. <laughs> Don't make a sound.
3: Turn out those lights. Mr. Van. Do as I say, Miss Andrews, quickly.
1: Okay, oh, what is all this, ban You scared the daylights out of me.
3: I hope you won't be scared again in a few minutes. That's the reason I'm here.
1: You got a reason for getting into my apartment, waiting for me, and asking me to turn out the light.
3: I had a reason and a passkey for getting in. And the lights were a little idea of mine in order to set a stage.
1: Look, I'd like to be a star, and I think I get what you mean about setting a stage. But, Vance, I wouldn't look good as a corpse. Gray isn't my color. Tell me what's going on.
3: You went to see Don Graham, didn't you?
1: Sure, you told me something in the theater that made me go to
3: see him. I had
1: to make sure that Graham knew that Susie didn't tell me anything before she was killed.
3: That's what I thought you'd do, and what I wanted you to do.
1: Well, thanks. It would have been easier if you'd asked
3: me. Easier, perhaps, but not quite as convincing. You'd better make yourself comfortable here, Miss Andrews. I'm quite certain you're going to have a visitor. But I haven't the slightest idea as to when he'll arrive. (coughs)
1: You still there, Vance?
3: Yes, Miss Andrews. The strain of waiting, getting you down.
1: No, but in case you see me walking a back fence tomorrow night, you'll know the reason. My eyes are getting so used to the dark in here, I'm practically a cat.
3: You're a much prettier girl than you would be a cat.
1: Maybe the darkness in here isn't going to be so bad after all. Say that again, will you, Vance?
3: Why? Didn't you hear me?
1: Oh, there are some things a girl can't hear often enough. In that case... (gasps)
3: Where is that John Light switch? Oh, yeah. There yeah, it is. Hey, That's Frankie. Don
1: too, ben. You want to
3: know what I'm doing here, Frankie? What are you two doing here? You and that knife. Right now, I'm waiting to use it on you.
1: Ben, look out. He's throwing that knife.
3: Thanks for the warning, Miss Andrews. Oh, no, Frankie. You're not getting out of here. That's what you think. That's what I know. Okay. Is this the way you want it?
1: Anybody oh. mind if I play too? Ah!
3: Oh, nice work, Miss Andrews. But you really shouldn't have hit him with that vase. I was having quite a bit of fun.
1: Sorry, I spoiled it. I guess maybe I shouldn't have.
3: Because you didn't want to spoil my fun?
1: Don't be silly. That vase I slugged him with cost (laughs) $1.98. That crumb really came up to let me have it, didn't he? Hey, why ain't I screaming?
3: I don't know, but thanks for not doing it. This man is Don Graham's assistant, you said? I said he was Graham's stooge. He killed your roommate on Graham's orders. And I'm quite certain that Mr. Markham can get him to admit that when we take him to headquarters. But
1: who wrote the note asking for 5Gs, Vance? And why did they think that Susie could get that kind of dough?
3: I'll explain all that to Markham. But you're invited if you care to find out all about this case. Frankie squealed on Don Graham, and you have both of them in custody, so I'll answer all questions from you and Miss Andrews now.
1: I got a question. What are you doing later?
3: I'll answer that later, Miss Andrews. Well, Markham, uh, who wrote the typewritten note that asked for $5,000? Miss Blake wrote that note herself. What? That's right. Markham, do you remember the typewriter at the home of Miss Blake's mother? Uh, no, no. I know she mentioned she had a typewriter she brought over from her native country, but I didn't see it. I didn't either, but I didn't have to. All I had to know was it was a foreign typewriter with English letters. Remember Miss Blake's mother said she worked for an American company? Yes. Anyhow, I knew that was the one used to write the note.
2: How did
1: you know that?
3: The note was typed perfectly except where the letter Y was used. Then, apparently, the typist had hit the letter Z first. A touch typist, such as her mother told us Miss Blake was, wouldn't look at the keys. She'd assume every typewriter had what is known as a standard keyboard.
1: And a foreign machine doesn't have that?
3: Well, it's standard except for one change. The Z and Y keys are transposed on a foreign typewriter. Because the letter Z is used more in foreign words. I get it now, Vance. This Blake, schooled on an American machine, would strike the wrong letter if she weren't looking at the keys. She wrote the threatening letter to herself when she was home the day before her death. <laughs> exactly. Now, as to why she wrote the letter. She wanted to take it to Don Graham and ask him for the $5,000. She wanted to use that money for clothes or for a trip to try to get into the movies or something like that. you
1: got it, Vance. She was movie mad, that gal.
3: That's what I suspected. Anyhow, she came to me to make the notes seem even more authentic. Then she went to Don Graham's for the money. But unfortunately, she overheard something up there that Graham didn't want made public. We have that in his confession, of course. Well, I want to thank you, Vance, for your help. Things certainly started moving when you got in the middle of this situation. All I care about is that we wound up successful at the end of the tip top murder case.
0: back. I actually enjoyed this episode quite a bit. We had something actually educational in here, because the explanation for the notes is totally plausible. While in the U.S., we use the Q-W-E-R-T-Y or Queerty keyboard layout. In Germany and Central Europe, much of it, there is what's called and I don't know if they pronounce it Queerz, but it's Q W E R T Z. And the fact that the Z and the Y are in different locations is the primary difference between the two layouts. So it's totally believable that the mother, having learned to type with that particular typewriter keyboard, would have continued to use that sort of typewriter. Either bringing the typewriter from the old country or acquiring a typewriter that... ...is in that layout, and then using that for whatever work she did. It also is plausible that the daughter didn't actually use that typewriter before, so when she went up and used it, having learned to type in America... She kept hitting the Z when she was reaching for the Y. I was wondering how this would work in the 21st century. And of course, in theory, with what we have with plug-and-play keyboards, you should just be able to plug in a keyboard in your native layout, regardless of where you are, and, you know, adjust the settings. Now, I've... Go you know, doing some search on the internet, I came across some folks who had challenges doing that. But you search for any sort of technical computer operation, you'll find that there are people who are encountering challenges doing it. I do wonder if people move from a country with one format to another, do they find it easier? to adapt to using the format in the country they're in or to uh, use a keyboard in their native format. And I should add that while the Quartz Z uh, keyboard format is very close to the T format, there are other layouts that are much different. For example, if mother came from France or Belgium, there would be a lot of errors in the letter because the keyboard position would be very different. Mom might still have the typewriter, but good luck to the daughter in figuring out how to use it unless she's specifically uh, trained on it because it's got a very, very different layout. Also, I do feel a little bad for the other dancers Dentist boyfriend, as Philo Vance has stolen his girlfriend's heart. With that note, let's turn to listener comments and feedback. Eric begins by quoting, uh, this is a comment on the I Hate Crime episode, episode 134, a.k.a. The Road to Gundagai, and uh, he says, In America, we call them murder farms. And Eric asks, We do? And that's an interesting point. I do fear sometimes that the Australian listener of the 1950s may have gotten slightly inaccurate pictures of America. Because the way that Larry described it in that episode, it it sounds like, oh, yeah, we know what those are. Those are, you know, pretty common in America, actually, where you have... A situation where motorists are lured from the road and their belongings stolen and they are murdered, those are called murder farms. Now, we also have a thing in America, they're called murder ranches. That's what happens when you do it with a ranch. Uh, There have been like a couple of murder duplexes, but those are generally not as successful. And actually, the only reference I could find to murder farms was to a farm where a murder was committed. You know, like a murder room, a murder farm. In-universe, I guess it could be just Larry trying to sound like he knows what he's talking about and to establish confidence. Nah, don't worry. We we deal with murder farms in America like three times a week we're good. Speaking of which, Eric goes on to write, Larry might be one of the most singularly unlikable detectives you've had on the great detectives of old time radio. What I did like about I Hate Crime was how he used other detectives to trail people or informants to find things out. That's a unique twist to a formula that I I appreciated. I just wish I liked Larry more. Can't say I'm sad to see him go. Well, thank you so much, Eric. I appreciate the opinion. And I'll admit that he was one of the more borderline choices, but I thought the series had enough interesting features, including the location, and uh, I think a couple of the stories that I really enjoyed. I'm a bit surprised we didn't have more people who didn't like it. Then we turned to YouTube, where Saisoff... Uh, comments on Sarah's private caper. This was a fun episode which I enjoyed, but I noted that there were a few times the studio audience laughed when nothing had been said. It makes me wonder if the actors did some visual gag that the studio audience could see, but of course couldn't be seen by the radio audience. This was a somewhat common occurrence in the early days of radio when performers like Eddie Cantor were still trying to apply the vaudeville format to their radio shows. It would seem that by the 1940s, every radio actor would know to no longer do that. Well, I appreciate the comment, uh, there were, yeah, you know, I've been in quite a few times where I've been listening to a radio program and that'll happen and I'm like, you know, it would be great, you know, if the millions of listeners at the time and the thousands who've listened since would be aware of what the hundreds in the studio audience were seeing. It's tough to tell though whether it's something that the actors actively did or if it's just something that they did which wasn't the you know some actor mugging for a laugh but was just something that the audience reacted to and thought was funny even though it wasn't planned that way. In many ways, I'm not a huge fan of studio audiences for audio dramas. But that said, I would kind of like to watch an audio drama. I think there are ways it can be managed uh, so that it's not intrusive. For example, the Unshackled audio dramas, except during COVID, were recorded before live audiences. You don't hear the audience, and the actors don't play to the audience in the studio, so that tends to work out quite well. Then we have a comment from Stephen regarding Dr. Tim, and he offers three thoughts about the listener comments on Dr. Tim. First, as you said, it seems... Uh, from old-time radio that it was very normal for doctors' offices to be a room in their house. It was separated, but attached to the living quarters. If this was true, a doctor having his office in an apartment might have been unusual, but not as strange as it would be in the 21st century. Secondly, in defense of Dr. Tim's housekeeping skills, he said his bedroom was his mess, not his laboratory or office. There are some who are very tidy in their work area, but their personal space isn't kept up as well. Also, we often put our best foot forward in public areas and hide our mess in private areas. So his office and lab may be neat while his bedroom is in disarray. Lastly, you did a good job responding to the question of kids helping a doctor solve mysteries. Still, I would like to add this. Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, The Hollisters, The Bobsy Twins, Trixie Belden, The Boxcar Kids, Tom Swift, Rick Brand, The G-Man Sons, Encyclopedia Brown, Jimmy Olsen, the list goes on. Many of these adv- have adventures that no sane parent would allow their children to have at that age. But this is a kid's fantasy. C.S. Lewis argued that books like Narnia are better fantasy than books about boarding school kids having cool adventures because readers know that Narnia is fantastic, but books about school kids masquerade as realistic when really being fantastically unrealistic. This same could be said for a lot of romance books. Thanks for the show and the commentary. I listen to your podcast first every weekday morning and have for years. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate your comments. Uh, Regarding the housekeeping, I guess it's a matter of imagination. And maybe mine is somewhat deficient. And this might be where having the first episode would come in handy. Because I kind of imagine uh, Dr. Tim's... uh, office is, or his space in this boarding house is kind of like a studio space since it's in a boarding house. You might be imagining correctly and there's a case to be made that it may be even more likely the way you're imagining it. Though it's not my typical picture of a boarding house though. Who knows maybe Dr. Tim is renting two rooms that are connected. So, one challenge of radio when we imagine the same thing a uh, different ways. I love that list of all of those series that you had, some of which call back to my mind childhood memories, the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, Tom Swift, and Encyclopedia Brown. I think Lewis did have a point. One thing that does bother me with a lot of modern series is, or modern takes on old. Uh, programs is that they try to make things realistic uh, that are in no ways realistic and can't be realistic. As an example, I want to—I'll mention the plot for the first season of the most recent Hardy Boys television program, and I, I enjoyed parts of that uh, series. But the uh, plot of the story was that they were looking in to the murder of their mother, which is all tied in to the history of their family and of this town that their mother is from. And at the center of that is this powerful artifact... That impacts luck and could reshape reality itself. And the Hardys' investigation into all of these goings on. Get slowed down because summer ends and they have to go back to school. And, of course, because Frank is a high schooler in this series, you get teen drama and who likes who. And you can tell the writer is trying to tell a story that's realistic about what kids are and what kids do. But in the context, it's ridiculous. I mean, if you are dealing with and stumbling onto a sinister conspiracy that involves your family, that involves the death of your mother, if you have been chased down by bad guys and you are continuing to have all of these developments happen to you, even if you have to go back to school, it's going to be... Somewhat of a secondary priority. And I mean, they even have Frank uh, taking like an after school job, if I recall correctly. It's been a while since I've seen the series, or might have been a summer job. But he has all this stuff going on. It's like, and all of this craziness, and it's just kind of like, well, I'm a kid and life has to go on. <laughs> And I need to do all of the high school kids stuff. Even the optional high school kids stuff. So if you're telling a story which at its core is a bit ridiculous, I think it's better to... Not, not necessarily going over the top, but to kind of lean into that rather than do something really odd that, you know, you're going to try and make something realistic. And certainly, you know, you can do some character stuff. And if realism serves that, then fine. But I think superfluous attempts at realism just kind of highlights how ridiculous the story is. But thanks so much for the comments. I appreciate it. Now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Chris, Patreon supporter since August of 2019. Currently supporting us at the shameless level of $4 or more per month. Thanks so much for your support, Chris. And that will do it for today. If you are enjoying the podcast, I encourage you to... Follow it using your favorite podcast software, including Spotify, Amazon Music, or the iHeartRadio app. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast on YouTube, be sure to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and mark the notification bell. All great things that helps the channel grow. Next Tuesday, we'll be introducing you to Meet Miss Sherlock. And then next Thursday, join us back for another episode of Follow Vance. But coming up tomorrow, listen for yours truly, Johnny Dollar, where...
3: Either that or it was opened by somebody who knew the combination. No signs of forced entry. I suppose you've notified the newspapers and radio stations. Yeah. Yeah, they're giving us complete coverage. Scare headlines, spot broadcasts every 15 minutes. I have to do something to let this guy know he's committing suicide by carrying that stuff around. Yeah, that goes for anybody who might come in contact with him, too. I made a copy of the lieutenant's list of all the hospital employees who might have had access to the vault room during the hours of 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Then I started back for the hospital to recheck. I was still looking for a cab outside of police headquarters when Lieutenant Doritos came hurrying out of the building and changed my plan of action.
0: I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram. Instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.